Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and welcome to episode 80 of All About Fitness. When most people start an exercise program, they list the generic goals of losing weight and toning up as a primary reason why they're starting to work out. Now, I've interviewed a couple people about losing weight, about the mechanisms of weight loss, specifically whether it's through fat metabolism or how the body adapts to high-intensity interval training. So now today, I'm going to focus on the other side of that equation by interviewing Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. Brad is a researcher who has spent numerous years studying the mechanisms of muscle growth. Brad got his start and got his interest in the field by competing as a bodybuilder, and that led him to all the way to getting his PhD specifically in the area of muscle hypertrophy. And just so you know, hypertrophy is a technical term for how our muscles grow. Brad is the author. He took his PhD research and wrote a book called The Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. So if anybody has an, a deep interest in how your muscles grow, I'll have a link to that book, as well as an article I wrote a few years ago on the subject of muscle hypertrophy. And in that article, I use a number of Brad's studies to kind of talk about the mechanisms of muscle growth. Well, today on All About Fitness, Brad and I discuss hypertrophy, how you can train for hypertrophy, and some of the common mistakes that most people make when they go to the gym. Now, what I want you to pay attention to this interview is how detailed Brad's answers are. Again, I've said this a number of times. There is no specific, there's no generic answer for fitness. I can't tell you what's going to work for you because I need to watch you move. I need to know a lot about you before I can give you an exercise program that may work. So anybody, any fitness expert or anybody who claims to be a fitness expert tells you to do something definitively, do not pay attention to them. Listen to how careful, listen to how detailed Brad's answers are. He gives a lot of thought to them, and none of the researchers I've interviewed. I've interviewed people from that, that you know, these are PhD researchers in the field of exercise science, and not a single one of them has definitively given a specific answer. They'll talk in generalities about things we've observed about how the body adapts to exercise, but not a single one of them will say, this is exactly what we know for sure. So pay attention to that today's interview. After a brief word from the sponsors of All About Fitness, it's indeed an honor to sit down with Dr. Brad Schoenfeld and discuss the mechanisms of muscle growth. What is part bench, part balance trainer, part stability ball, part jump box, and all results? The TerraCore by Vicor Fitness. Specially designed to help enhance balance, strength, agility, and metabolic conditioning, the TerraCore is quickly becoming the go-to piece of workout equipment used by fitness professionals around the world. Whether you're training to earn that eight-figure contract or just trying to get in better shape, the TerraCore will help you achieve results you never thought possible. TerraCore by Vicor Fitness, the shape of things to come. Go to www. V-I-C-O-R-E fitness.com and use code AAF that's all about fitness AAF to save 20% on the purchase of a TerraCore you enjoy exercise you actually have fun working out are you aware that physically active individuals like yourself have a lower risk of developing a chronic disease when compared to sedentary inactive adults all About Fitness is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance agency that helps physically active, health-conscious adults like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, and vegetarians 
get lower rates on their life insurance. Being a good driver saves you money on car insurance. Now with Health IQ, your active lifestyle can help you save money on the cost of life insurance. Health IQ is a life insurance agency that recognizes the fact that you make your health a priority and rewards it with a more affordable coverage plan. Go to healthiq.com slash AAF to support the show and see if you qualify for Health IQ's exclusive rates. No one ever plans to fail. They simply fail to plan. Don't let your passing fail your family by leaving them financially unavailable to overcome life's challenges. Go to healthiq.com slash AAF and take a quiz to find out how you can start saving on life insurance today. I'm Pete McCall with All About Fitness. I'm here today speaking with Brad Schoenfeld. Brad, can you give us a little bit of background about what it is that you do and, and kind of what the role you play in the fitness industry? Sure. I, I've been the, I've worn many hats over the years in the field. I've been a practitioner for many years. I was a personal trainer. I had a private studio for 18 years, which I sold in 2011. But at this point, I'm a researcher, uh, educator, professor, author, and wear some other hats as well. And basically, my, my goal is to promote an evidence-based approach to exercise and sports nutrition, or nutrition in general, actually. And my primary focus is on muscle hypertrophy, which is growth, and muscle strength. Well, and that's, that's one of the things, because you recently received your PhD, correct? Uh, now it's going on four years, but yeah. Oh, okay. It seems like it was, it was just recently. And how long, how long was the program? How long did, uh, did you take in, uh, oh, in finishing that? Yeah, it was a little over three years. I really fast tracked it. So, uh, I, I know my cohorts, there was started with 15. We ended up with nine in the cohort. And, uh, so I finished in just over three years. The next one after me took a little over four. So, I mean, I was just really hell bent and focused. And, and part of the cool thing when I went, went into it is I knew exactly what I wanted to do for my dissertation. I had my dissertation planned, uh, by the time I entered the PhD, when most people, they kind of feel it out over time. And, uh, I just was very focused, knew what I wanted to do and was able to do it, uh, in the quickest amount of time possible. And so what was the focus of your dissertation? It was on muscle hypertrophy. So it was a, uh, a study looking at bodybuilding style training versus powerlifting style training. It was published in the journal strength and conditioning research, uh, now three years ago, I think that was published. And what we did was we looked at a volume equated uh, low rep program, which would be a powerlifting, so three repetitions versus a bodybuilding style program, 10 repetitions. And we looked at various outcomes of strength and muscle mass. And uh, the interesting finding was that on a volume equated basis, there was no differences in muscle growth. So doing a, a low rep pure powerlifting routine can get you, certainly in the, at least in the muscle we study, uh, as big as you can with the hypertrophy type routine, a bodybuilding routine, but the powerlifting routine got them stronger right, in both the squat and the bench press. Uh, now the negative portion, if you want to get into a little specifics and some of the interesting nuances was that, uh, the time factor took almost four times as long to finish the powerlifting program to equate the volume load. So it was highly inefficient, if you will. And also the uh, grinding of eight weeks, it was an eight-week study of doing really heavy lifting uh, continuously for eight weeks, 
the powerlifting group was toast and they really needed a break and they there was more injuries in that group and oh. there was nagging so it's not quite what it seems if you just look at certain results you get one one opinion say hey why not do a powerlifting when you kind of balance it out there's reasons why that probably isn't the best way to get big well and why do powerlifters and bodybuilders look so different then that's one of the things that that's always you know, there's kind of not scratching my head. I mean, I kind of have an understanding why, but for listeners, you know, cause powerlifters are, you know, very solid with, without an extreme amount of definition yet bodybuilders, you know, are the quite opposite. Why, why do their physiques look so different? Well, I can give you a few things. First of all, as I mentioned, the study that we carried out looked at equating the volume, generally speaking. And that meant that they were doing seven sets of the three, three rep powerlifting group was doing seven sets of each uh, exercise, whereas the bodybuilding group is only doing three sets. Uh, most times powerlifters are only doing three or four sets, and we've actually carried out a study where we looked at a non-volume equated, where they just equated the number of sets, and they didn't equate the volume load, which has to do with factoring in the amount of, of load lifted. And um, the results were quite different. The, the bodybuilding group, when it was just three sets of three versus three sets of 10, the bodybuilding group saw much greater gain. So part of it, I think, is the the fact that bodybuilders, uh, that powerlifters generally don't train with as much volume, and thus that volume is a primary driver of hypertrophy. Another factor is bodybuilders tend to train with um, from multiple angles. They'll use different exercises to target muscles differently, where a powerlifter, let's say, will just do chest press, flat chest press. A bodybuilder will do some flies. They'll do an incline press. So they're hitting the muscle somewhat differently, and that's working different. Heads of the muscle working the fibers in different ways that, again, can promote a greater amount of growth. So I think there's several factors. And, and part of it also could be genetics, that people who are stronger tend to gravitate towards more towards powerlifting, and people that have more bodybuilding-style uh, genetics tend to gravitate more to bodybuilding. So I think there's a confluence of factors that you can look at. And, and real quick, to take kind of a step back, what do you mean by hypertrophy? I mean, some of the people who, some people listening might not have an understanding of what that means. And how'd you get studied, how do you get interested in studying hypertrophy? So hypertrophy basically is growth, is growth of muscle. And when we talk about muscle, hypertrophy is growth of, of anything. You can have hypertrophy of fat cells. Uh, but when we talk about hypertrophy, it's specific to muscle. It's the growth of muscle tissue. And how I got interested in it is because when I was uh, younger, I didn't have any hypertrophy. And uh, that had a negative effect on my self-esteem. So I uh, decided that I needed to do something about it. And I started lifting. And long story short, it just changed my life. The, um, the effect that it had on my self-esteem, my self-confidence, was just amazing and that uh, basically caused me to say this is something I want to do and I want to help others. So uh, it became a fascination with me. Now, you're a bodybuilder, correct? And, and, and are, do you still compete or, or how long did you compete for? Well, I guess you say once a bodybuilder, always a bodybuilder. But no, I haven't competed now since uh, oh, 15 years. So it's been a while. I competed over about a seven-year period, six or seven-year period as a pure natural bodybuilder. I achieved what I wanted to achieve. Basically, it was it gave me a platform to kind of show myself, if not other people, but just kind of say, hey, look, this is where I've come from where I was. And it was very, uh, very stimulating for me. Very, um, it helped me get self-actualized. Uh, but it, basically, I, I felt that I had gotten myself to where I could. Now, could I have 
perhaps gotten a little further, yeah, but you're limited somewhat by your genetics and also by your career. And I just didn't have the time to start if I wanted to, let's say, do a pro-natural, go pro-natural. I mean, traveling, it just wasn't in my cards to do what I would have had to do and putting in the time of training and diet. And um, I'm very content. Now, I'll never say never. At some point, I might say, hey, I, I'm a master's now. I might uh, say <laughs> I, I get that urge to come back at some point and uh, prove to myself again. But at this point, that's not on the horizon. Well, what, and what was the hardest thing? Because you know, I'll get into another question after this. But for your experience and, and from maybe a scientific standpoint, when it comes to bodybuilding and, and achieving muscle growth, which is harder, the training, following the right training program or the proper nutrition program? Yeah, it's the nutrition. It, well, when you say harder, it's more grueling. The, the, the nutrition-wise, I mean, having to micromanage everything, it just requires a lot more time and effort and, and willpower, uh, whereas the training is the training. And it's not uh, – but, but it's not only the training, too, which you have to remember there's a lot of posing, especially when you start getting pre-contests. There's eight to twelve weeks of, of hard posing, and that was a that was pretty grueling. If you do a hard posing session, so it's it's kind of a combination. But certainly, if you'd ask me which one was the uh, the one you'd least want to do at this, especially at this point, it's the nutrition and uh, being especially micromanaging when you get towards the end of your pre comp uh, time becomes a real uh, real sacrifice. Well, and the reason why I ask that, Brad, is is I think that it has to do with expectations of managing people's expectations when they exercise. Because I think a lot of people get motivated to exercise because they want muscle definition, because they want muscle growth. But I think a lot of that comes from what you do outside the gym. Is that would would you you know how would you characterize the best way to achieve muscle growth? Um. That I don't think we have enough time to. Uh, I have written books. On that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it goes three hundred pages. Yeah, but um, I'm in a, kind of in a nutshell. I mean, this from a nutritional standpoint, muscle growth is achieved by being in a slight caloric surplus. So you can grow while you're cutting and, and lose some body fat, but you're never going to maximize your growth. Uh, you need to be have more. Uh, energy than you're you, you need to be taking in more than you're expending from an energy standpoint to allow your body to maximally uh, to have maximal anabolism. Uh, you need to have proper protein intake adequate, which is about a little to around a gram per pound for our European uh, colleagues and Canadian colleagues. It would be about 2.2 grams or two grams per kilogram, so slightly less, uh, if you will. Um, so, and, and as far as the carbs and the, the fats, it's very malleable. There's really no, uh, to some extent, I would say having a somewhat higher carbohydrate intake helps. But I think, and certainly I would also say that I do not think a ketogenic diet is ideal for maximizing muscle growth. So if, when I say ketogenic diet, that's where you have your carbohydrates very low. But you certainly don't need a high carbohydrate intake. You You need to support your... Uh, glycogen levels and have enough to uh, to maintain good training practices. And from a training standpoint, uh, it's a confluence of, of factors, variables that you need to manipulate over time. And that includes volume is going to be a primary driver of hypertrophy. And uh, then training through a spectrum of rep ranges, uh, having frequency, uh, proper training frequency. And I generally use frequency to modulate 
volume because if you're going to do a two-hour, you could do, let's say, three two-hour workouts or six one-hour workouts. Well, the two-hour workouts, by the time you're halfway through your workout, you're starting to lose your focus and, and certainly your the energy to train. So, the, again, it becomes a – there's a lot of factors here that goes into, goes into something like that. I, I do seminars all over where basically it's an eight-hour seminar discussing the nuances. So, anyway, that's kind of the well, – long and short of it and it would depend on how in-depth you want to get well i think that well that's the perfect answer brex i think i want to just get people understanding that just because you buy a gym membership and maybe you start working out you're not going to blow up i mean it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of focus and you've been studying this for years and it's hard to dispel it down into one or two simple statements i mean because i think that's one of the biggest fallacies we have out there is there are people out there in social media promoting like advice in like a 30 second clip on a social media channel and they don't understand the amount of work it takes to actually achieve muscle growth. Absolutely. Uh, and, and the other thing I would say to that is that there's no cookie cutter formula that I can give. I can give generalized recommendations and ultimately different people respond differently. If, when I do a research study and I do a lot of them, you see a huge spectrum of gains. So I'll, I'll do a study and uh, let's say we're reporting a 10% gain in biceps growth for a given uh, condition, meaning let's say high rep, but let's say I'm studying high versus low reps, and let's say the, the high reps gets 10% biceps gains. Well, let's say I had 12 subjects in that study. Some might be getting 20% gains and other might be getting none. And you will see that, and that's kind of the high and the low. So you're seeing the high and low of the range, and then you'll see within that range, there's a cluster. Some are getting 3%. Some are getting 14%. And does that mean that that person is destined to only get 3%? No. That means that maybe they would respond differently by altering that variable. And that's why, again, through science, we can give guidelines. But then within that, you got to find out what works. So we, we basically can help to reduce the learning curve. That, to me, is what science is best at. It's It's providing these when we talk about evidence-based, so what we know through research and then how that applies to the individual. But by applying these guidelines, you can get a baseline where to start. And then you need to say, hey, look, I think I can be getting better gains if I did more volume or less volume or different repetition ranges or less repetition ranges or a dozen other things. And I think that's important for people to understand about research is you're you're taking a snapshot. You, you, you just mentioned you had a group of 12. You're taking a snapshot of, a, of a, sometimes a finite, sometimes a larger population, and you're only studying it for a specific period of time for specific right. variables. So when, when do you have any suggestions for how people should kind of digest or just kind of absorb the research that's put out there or articles on on training? Yeah, so I mean for the average consumer, it's very difficult because if, if you don't have a science background, uh, you're, you try wading through a study and going through the methods, it's very – very difficult, if not impossible, to really understand and to to have the appreciation for the nuances. Uh, I would say for the average consumer, it's good to, uh, if you can, to try to digest what are called systematic reviews and meta-analyses, which basically are conglomerations of all the evidence on a given topic. But even then, there are nuances within those. But at least a review is going to give you kind of a general overview by a a quote-unquote expert, um, and that has been peer-reviewed, so it's been looked at by others in the field who are considered experts. As to what current guidelines are, uh, you also can look at position stands, although 
I would have big issues with some of the things that are stated in the, some of the position stands. But at least they will give you, they'll put you in the right ballpark. And then I would say listening to people who are highly qualified, like yourself, Pete, and other uh, others in the field who uh, who have a good scientific background and understanding and can help to um, condense the uh, science for and, and simplify it for the masses. Well, no, I appreciate that. And you, you've done a lot of research reviews, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list the one that you and uh, Brett did on, on core training. I'm going to link that down below because I think that's, a, that's an important one. Were there any surprises, like of the research you've conducted or the reviews you've done, was there anything, anything that you found that, that kind of surprised you that, that went against what you, you thought when you started the process? Not the reviews, because when, when I set out to do a review, I pretty much know the literature. Uh, when you talk, so some of the things, and some of the meta-analyses in a review, when you're just looking it over, they're all studies that basically I know. When, you, when we talk about what's called a meta-analysis, you actually, um, you're going to use statistics to analyze the data, and then you're going to get kind of hard numbers. And there have been a couple, of, I would say that, um, yeah, because that then you don't know. Like I know the what the studies show, and I can kind of give an opinion. Um, one of the ones that did surprise me, which I had really no clue what was going to happen uh, when we did it, was uh, a study on protein timing. So there's this anabolic window that many people know about, which says that if you really want to maximize muscle gains, you should be getting slamming a protein shake within 45 minutes, a half hour, 45 minutes of the end of your workout, or you start going catabolic. And um, interestingly, when we first uh, the first go around on that meta analysis, it showed a slight. I was anticipating there wasn't going to be any effect, just based upon looking, knowing all the studies. But we did show a uh, a small but a sig- statistically significant effect of protein timing. The the kicker was, and this was even more interesting. We ended up doing what's called a sub analysis, and we ended up finding out that the uh, the gains were attributed not to the timing, but the fact that one of the groups was getting a placebo. So basically they were getting less protein. Mm. When we actually looked at the data, the effects could be attributed to the fact that one group was getting 1.7 grams of protein, where the which was the timing group, because they were actually getting protein. The other group was being given a placebo, and they were getting 1.2 grams. And that's been shown that 1.2 grams is suboptimal for muscle building, and uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, that was uh, that to me was a very interesting result and in finding. And uh, I think we uh, we got a lot of. Uh, flat from certain people on that meta analysis because it kind of went against their fundamental beliefs. But the data are what the data are. When you uh, when you quantify it, that's a cool thing about a meta analysis. You quantify the data, and that's really the results of what we have through the literature. So so then, because I remember reading that, and I think you said the anabolic window isn't as critical as we once thought. Would that is that am I am I remembering that correctly? That is correct. So I would say now, and that again comes with caveats, and this is why I say for the average consumer, it becomes a little uh, difficult to kind of ascertain. So number one, what we quantified was that it really kind of depends upon when you have your pre-workout meal. So if you're going to have protein, let's say say you train fasted, then the anabolic window becomes a lot more important because you didn't have any protein in your system, amino acids in your system prior to the uh, workout. But let's say you have, uh, you're eating an hour, hour and a half before, you have probably several hours after your workout where you're still going to be anabolic from what you had before. 
Uh, and here's the other kicker. What I'll say is that the really the vast majority of research on this topic has been in untrained individuals, mm. and it is possible. So I would say for someone who has little training experience, that's going to be the effect. But I can't say that for uh, someone with a lot of training experience, there might not be greater benefits. There's just not. I can't say there would. But there just isn't enough evidence to make a claim on it. And also, I would say that if you are a high-level athlete or a bodybuilder, even small effects can uh, be very important. It can be the difference between winning and losing a bodybuilding competition or, or making a play in, in sports. And I would say in, when I, I'm a sports nutritionist for a professional team, uh, I tell them, when in doubt, have the shake immediately after that. That's where the small differences that for your average stockbroker or insurance salesman isn't going to make any difference. For a uh, someone at the elite levels of sport, you want to cover all bases. Well, that's an important thing. That brings a question to mind that that I wasn't even thinking about because a lot of the studies, you know, there's been a lot of debate on the hormone hypothesis when studies are looking at untrained individuals. They might not have all the hormone receptors or the same level of circulating hormones as someone who's been training for a number of years. Is that, I mean, is that the experience? Is, is somebody who's been recreationally exercising, weightlifting for a number of years, would they have a slightly different hormone profile and be, and be more receptive to an anabolic uh, manipulation like, like nutrient timing? Uh, I certainly can't say no to that. So, I, I mean, it's a, it's a valid hypothesis. Uh, I can speculate on it, but that really is – that in the quarter will get you a, a gulp of coffee. Well, uh, and, that, and that's what I appreciate though because – that's why I try to have guests on the podcast like yourself because I don't want people giving an answer that's like, oh, yeah, sure. You're very thoughtful and you're very precise in your answers, and I want listeners, listeners to appreciate that, that you're not going to say something – and try to because you don't want to equivocate it to all listeners. You're very you want to be based on the science. That's what you're well known for. I mean, how important is that to you? Yeah, and it's, that's such a great point, Pete. And I will say, the more I am exposed to research, then the the more I've been, the longer I've been in academia and has served as a researcher. And now, well over I've published well over a hundred peer-reviewed papers. Uh, I've become more and more cautious for making definitive statements because the literature tends to go there's many gaps in the literature so until I, and I get a real sense that the literature is 85% you're almost never going to get 100% on anything but that's where I'll start to become more definitive usually you're dealing like in a 70 60 70 at best sometimes it's 50 50 and then you really just don't basically it's flip a coin but even when I start to have an idea I'll say it suggests it's it's indicative but uh, there's always, um, as I mentioned earlier, there's always going to be caveats, or often there are going to be caveats, and um, you need to also consider who you're dealing with because, like I said, for the average consumer, they're not going to care about, let's say I'll tell them, look, I can get you an extra pound of muscle. The thing is you're going to have to train an extra four hours a week and micromanage your diet. Is that going to be important to them? No. I, I mean, if you're a, a stockbroker and you say over the course of a year, you'll gain either six pounds or seven pounds, and that's going to be spread out over the whole body. I, most of them, I'd, I'm sure 98% would say no. But like I said, for a bodybuilder, you tell them that, they're doing that extra four hours and they're micromanaging. They're going to be taking whatever supplement you're telling them or for a a pro hockey player, basketball player, football player, those are really, that could be the difference between $5 million a year or 
or being in the minor leagues. Well, and I think that comes back to to the point I made earlier about expectations, you know, managing your expectations from exercise. Because when you're dealing with certain high-level individuals, whether they're an athlete or whether they're like a sports athlete or, or figure, and I, I mean figure for any type of bodybuilding or figure competition, you know, you're, you're talking about very minor changes. But I think it's really important for people who are just casual recreational exercisers to have realistic expectations. I mean, how do you, how do you help manage expectations for the average consumer? Uh, that's a great question, and, and that ultimately comes down to the individual. Some of them are very – look, I've worked now over the years when I had my training center. I've worked with several thousand uh, individuals, uh, clients, and uh, some people would be very – you tell them, look, this is – I can tell you what you can get if you want to put in this amount of time, and this is a general – and other people just don't want to believe it or they don't uh, – you know, they, they won't accept that. So when you say, how do you do it? You need to understand the mindset of that individual and try then to communicate. Some people you'll never get through to. And, and, uh, I, and well, I think, sorry, to, but I think it's important that if you can only exercise two or three hours a week, you're not going to, and you, you don't really take time to focus on your diet, you can't really expect significant changes. I mean, is that, and you, I think sometimes people don't want to hear that. They want that all or none, uh, you know, reaction. I, actually, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with, I would say that if you would, can commit <laughs> two days a week, uh, let's say an hour uh, per session to resistance training, yeah, you're definitely not going to step on stage as a bodybuilder. But then it comes down to what, what do you, it's semantics or it basically comes down to interpretation. What do you call good results? I would say you can definitely add a decent amount of muscle and you're going to get stronger. And uh, you'll see probably 50% of the gains that you'd get with a, much more intense routine is 50% of good gains. I mean, I, I certainly don't think you'd get nothing. Now, yeah, if you did, let's say, one day a week for 20 minutes, I know Mike Menser used to, <laughs> towards the end of his career, when, in, when he got a little loopy, he kind of promoted stuff like that. But for, for all practical purposes, yeah, you're not going to, you start getting to the absurdism and you're not going to get anything. But, but here's another, I think, very important point um, within that, that uh, it's also important to, I think to let people know that doing um, more to a certain point is going to have the trade-off of quality of life. So what is going to be important to them for, you have to, I think kind of like what you were saying, are, are they going to be happier with that? Ex is, is the extra gains going to be worth the extra effort? And I think that's where the balance comes in. So being, I think, uh, upfront with someone and saying, look, you tell me what you want to do, which what your goals are here, I can tell you what you're going to need to get there. Then if you're telling me that's going to be too much, I can tell you, all right, if we cut it back, here's where you're going to be. And are you going to be satisfied with that? So to me, everything in life is, is a trade-off. It's a cost-benefit, risk-reward, and that's up to the individual then to determine what is best. And, and I, that's one of the reasons why I try to put this information into this podcast is I want people to understand that you can use exercise to promote the quality of life. I mean, the tagline that I use is fitness is having the ability to do what you want to do when you want to do it, and that you don't need to commit so many hours a week just to get some health benefits, that doing just a little bit will, will produce some, some, some significant changes. So I appreciate what you're saying about the two hours. Yeah. And, and that is a very important uh, factor. Like, I know I get grilled or I get um, a lot of hate mail from hit people, high intensity training, not the hit aerobic, but basically the one set to failure crews uh, hell bent on saying that you, all you need to do is one set. And to me, that's kind of the most 
absurd comment you can make because it's saying that it's a one-size-fits-all prescription, that everyone's going to get the same gains. And a lot of times they're reducing it to such low volumes that it's it's absurd anyway. But what I would say to them is I also I completely agree that you can get very nice gains depending upon what type of hit routine you want. Usually a hit routine is going to be more one set to failure three days a week. And I think with a routine like that, you can get uh, a majority. You could probably get 70%, maybe 80% of your gains. Uh, it's hard to quantify in that type of, of respect, and it will be dependent on the individual. But uh, I, I would say certainly with a lower volume, you don't need to do a lot to see very good health, uh, strength, and even some muscle benefits. Cool, and I appreciate that that input. Now, a couple technical questions before before we finish up here. What is you know the difference between sarcoplasmic and myofibular hypertrophy? I've seen that in a few blogs, and I've seen that in a few posts. And some people say it doesn't exist; other people do. And and in your book, you, you kind of go into some of the differences. But how would you describe that to the consumer? Yeah, so myofibrillar hypertrophy is the um, increase in proteins of the contractile elements and they are the contractile elements are what causes muscles to contract as the, the term implies and that's actin and myosin and there's some other contractile properties uh, as well as myotillin this titan so, so there are some other we've discovered some other properties uh, that, that are involved in the contractile apparatus but uh, basically, the, the concept there is that that's really going to be what's involved in making you stronger. The um, sarcoplasmic fractions is the fluid portion of the cell, and, or it's the non-contractile portion, really. Uh, there is the sarcoplasm is the fluid area, and there's also other um, proteins within the uh, sarcoplasm uh, um Anyway, this is, rather than getting kind of technical, I know you said it's more of a consumer audience, but um, you know, well, one that they probably would know is mitochondria and some other is, uh, enzymes, et cetera, that are not part of the contractile elements, but they're, in, they're integrated into the sarcoplasm. And uh, the idea generally between, uh, behind sarcoplasmic hypertrophy usually is focused on the fluid portion itself, so the liquid, the water portion, the hydro uh, portion. And um, does it occur? Well, yes, it certainly occurs. Number one, there's an increase in glycogen. Glycogen is the stored carbohydrate in muscle. So when you first start training, you're going to uh, store more glycogen. And glycogen attracts three and a half, four grams of water for each gram of glycogen. So that's going to make the muscle more water-based itself. So you're going to have greater sarcoplasm. The, here's the rub, though. Some people will say that, well, the powerlifting style routine is going to increase your contractile hypertrophy and your light loads, your bodybuilding pump type training gives you sarcoplasmic growth. Basically, you're just going to get more fluid. It's a silly argument. There's zero basis for it. And it's been been debunked. I mean, that's something I would say with 100 uh, percent confidence that it doesn't happen. We, we've looked at those things under a microscope. Uh, so you're always, you can never have one without the point is you will have sarcoplasmic growth, but you're always, whether you're doing light load training, heavy load training, et cetera, you're going to see contractile hypertrophy along with it. You don't just get blown up like a water balloon from bodybuilding training. It's silly. The question then comes, is there a certain training style that will have a greater effect on uh, sarcoplasmic growth versus contractile growth? That is still somewhat 
controversial and uh, equivocal. There's really very little research that I, I can point to that would really show. I mean, certainly research from our lab that I've collaborated on shows that there was an 8% increase in uh, fluid in a body 12-week bodybuilding-style training, but there also was contractile increases. If we did a bodybuilding-style training, which conceivably can increase glycogen stores to a greater extent than powerlifting, which doesn't rely on what's called glycolysis, the use of carbohydrates. So at least conceivably, you're not going to see as much glycogen uh, increases in the muscle. Would that then reduce the uh, water conceivably? How much of a difference is that actually going to make, though? I can't say. Is it going to be appreciable where you can notice it? So these are all things that aren't well delineated. I think the thing I would just say with a high degree of confidence is the uh, the claim of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is like the dominant way that bodybuilders grow is bunk. It's it's complete bro science, and there's zero um, zero credence to it. Cool. No, I I appreciate that. That that, that helps me understand it a little bit better. And and you've had some feedback on one or two things I've written about that before, and. and so I want to ask that for myself, but also for listeners. Now, last, last two ones have to do with overload, the difference between mechanical and metabolic overload. And you just kind of alluded to it, but I wanted to get, kind of get a little more specific about what is mechanical overload and how does that differ from metabolic overload? Yeah, so, so mechanical stress, mechanical tension uh, is basically the, uh, the forces that are acting on the muscle. Uh, so on a very basic level, heavier loads are going to be have a greater mechanical um, stress on the muscle than lighter loads. Now, that's somewhat – that starts to become somewhat semantical too because that's assuming you're lifting, let's say, one rep. If I do one rep at 95% of my 1RM then I, and versus 50% 1RM – uh, you're going to have much greater mechanical load. But what if I took that 50% uh, 1RM and I did that to failure? You're getting progressively higher mechanical loads as you're getting closer to failure. So what is the effects on the muscle? Uh, that's still somewhat in question uh, in terms of how that plays out. Now, from a metabolic standpoint, um, we talk about metabolic stress, that is the buildup of metabolites. And that you're going to get greater metabolite buildup through training with lighter loads. And that kind of goes, as you mentioned, to what we were just talking about, because doing very heavy loads, you're working in what's called your phosphagen system, your ATP creatine uh, phosphate uh, system. And uh, that will not involve the buildup of uh, lactic acid. You're really not using carbohydrates. When you're training with more moderate to higher loads, let's say you're doing a 15 rep set you're going to be using a lot more stored glycogen in an anaerobic uh, environment, which means that the, um, again, I don't want to get too technical here, but the breakdown products of the carbohydrate uh, use for ATP will ferment into lactic acid. That's the burn most people feel, and that ultimately stops contraction. And there is some evidence that the metabolite buildup itself, specifically like the lactic acid, uh, can have effects on muscle growth in various ways. And this, again, is still an area that needs a lot more research. Does it do it on its own? Is it additive to uh, to mechanical tension? 
we don't know these the answers to these questions really yet, or we don't have, when I say we don't know, we don't, don't have firm conclusions. That's something, again, where I will defer and say that it's the evidence seems to show there is a benefit to metabolic stress, but I can't say with a high degree of confidence that it would have an additive effect. And now that comes back to, you made this point when you started off first talking about that one research. This is why it's important to do different periods and different phases of, of strength training, right? I mean, you want to do some phases of, of heavy, you know, heavy load, low rep, and other phases of maybe light load, you know, rep to fatigue. I mean, what role, how important is periodization for, for overall exercise and for health? Well, conceptually, I would say there's a very good basis for it. If you're asking me research-wise, uh, interestingly, the research is very equivocal, and I think part of that is is that, well, there's a several reasons. Number one, the studies have been very generally very short durations. Periodization is something that generally shows its, its benefits over time, so it's not going to happen generally in an eight-week period. Uh, the designs of these, many of these studies didn't push subjects where you'd see much of a benefit of periodization. Generally, they're using untrained subjects as well. And with untrained subjects, you're, if anything, I would say changing things around is not a good idea. In the first several weeks to a couple months of training, you're better off keeping it simple so that they get better integrated learning, motor pattern learning. If you're changing things around, that kind of goes against basic principles of motor learning. Uh, so I think the, the literature still is very equivocal on it, but there's certainly a very good underlying basis for it. And I, I would say in my own practice from an anecdotal standpoint, I would certainly vouch for it. Um, and, and you can make a very good case um, why utilizing different rep ranges, like you kind of talked about, has benefits not only on potentially by altering the uh, mechanical, I mean, the um, I'm sorry, the um, mechanisms, the mechanistic reasons, so metabolic stress versus uh, mechanical tension versus potentially muscle damage as well. Uh, even just the fact that I mentioned earlier the study that I did in powerlifters, training with heavy loads all the time uh, will have negative effects on your joints and, and your neuromuscular system. I've seen that dude, clearly. So training then with light loads, deloading, if you will, altering in different patterns is going to allow you to, um, to, to have a greater joint-friendly effect. And, and we talked about before, from a bodybuilding standpoint, if your goal is maximizing muscle, hitting the muscle from different angles would, would start to become much more important. So uh, multiple reasons why changing things, by manipulating program variables, uh, volume, repetition range, so loading, frequency, rest intervals, exercises, training to failure even would be another important variable. Do you, should you train to failure on every set? Uh, I, I would say that would be detrimental, and I, there's some evidence in the literature on that, but certainly anecdotal evidence, I would say, without question, if you are training to failure uh, over the long term with multiple sets, you're setting yourself up for being overtrained. Interesting. And that, that comes into, do you have any advice for recovery? I mean, what's kind of like your, your go-to for, is it time off? Is it nutrition-based? Or what is like a good, you know, kind of a good overall recovery strategy for what people should be doing after they get out of the gym? You know, nutrition is always going to be a, an important factor. Um, and there's that, again, it would be a topic for another podcast. But, <laughs> That's uh, a whole podcast but, series. But I, I would say just on, on a very simple basis that I do, I'm a proponent of what's called deloads, where you take, uh, generally it's a week, 
uh, and that could be anywhere between usually it's four to eight weeks or so. So if you train hard for a period of four to eight weeks, you want to take a week of lighter loading where you'll uh, reduce the certainly the intensity and, and to some extent the volume as well. Usually I do both. So having fewer training days and also not certainly not training to failure and just using lighter loads, kind of just keeping a, a little bit of a pump on you. And uh, that certainly you don't, um, you will not have any detraining effect if you do that, and you will see better results. Basically, it's kind of, it fosters a wave-like pattern where you ultimately uh, are allowing your body to heal and rejuvenate, and then you come back stronger. Well, and just personally, that's one thing that I'll do after like, a, you know, I'll do like six to eight week blocks of kettlebell, barbell, whatever heavy load training. But then after that, each one, after each block, I'll do like maybe two to four weeks of just body weight training, sometimes with a suspension trainer and sometimes with just like low load, like medicine ball stuff. So, and I'll yep. talk a little bit more about that in, in, in the post show notes. And final question, any common gym, uh, gym myths that you want to dispel anything that kind of, when you hear it or, or see it and, and I, I, I love how active you are in social media, but any, any kind of gym this that you would love to blow out of the water? God, there. Uh, that's a topic for <laughs> that is that that's is, a topic is. for an eight-hour podcast. <laughs> yeah. There's just so many. I mean, the, yeah. uh, the gym myths. You're talking nutritional like, things like tilapia thins the skin. Too much protein causes uh, kidney damage for anyone. I mean, that can happen if you have unhealthy kidneys, but it does nothing. There's no evidence of that in healthy kidneys. Um, I mean, basic uh, exercise that if you do cable crossovers, you're going to burn off a line down the center of your chest. If you do uh, concentration curls, it works the peak of your biceps. Uh, Leg extensions are going to make your knees fall off. Crunches (laughs) are going to make your spine blow out. I mean, these are all just silly things that are either over-extrapolated from research improperly or or complete myths. Uh, Do you have a favorite? I mean, sorry, I said it was going to be the last one. Do you have a favorite? Like, what's your go-to, like, your, you know, you want to go in and crush a day at the gym. Do you have like a favorite workout that you go to, like whether it's a chest day or a leg day or what would be kind of the thing that you know, you want to get pumped up that, that really gets you going? Um, no, you know, I don't. I, I basically my training. Um, so, so right now my training has been curtailed a lot in terms of the what I can the time I can put in. I'm doing shorter workouts. I'm more in a kind of a maintenance phase just because of my schedule. But um, I, I mean, if you're asking me. My, what I like to do, if you're asking me my, uh, the, the best way that I like for growing is to periodize volume over time where I, I would do like a month of mo- uh, lower volume, then a month of moderate volume, and then really crush it doing a six day a week, uh, like a one month or three weeks really before I have a uh, active recovery phase for a week. But I would do like a three week really high volume, a six day a week uh, s- split where I'm doing like uh, push pull and then legs and then take a day off push pull and legs and really blasting the muscles for a three week period or so and then starting over again where it's lower volume and, and I've found that cycling not only in myself but in uh, high level physique competitors that I've trained that's uh, seemed to got gotten the best results over time and that's I, I appreciate that feedback because I think you know so people always like to hear like what what do the experts do? Well, you have one of my favorite blog titles, Brad. How can people follow? Where's where's your blog? How can people find more information that you've put out? Yeah, so my blog is called Look Great Naked. That's Look Great Naked, not Look Good Naked, which apparently is a site that 
you might or you might not want to visit, but look great naked. It's um, I, it's all free, and I have a lot of content on there. I do need to actually blog more. Uh, and I'm also very active on social media. I'm uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I, ha- I always posting. I try to give out a lot of free content. I consider myself an educator, and my goal, I, I Uh, The one thing I will say, I I believe that we live on this earth a very short period of time and that in my time on earth, I want to make an impact. And uh, my impact is is as an educator, I'm not going to cure cancer. I'm not going to split the atom. But within my own sphere of influence, uh, I want to promote evidence-based fitness. And I think it's such an important topic that people don't fall for hype and that they're armed with proper guidelines to get themselves the best result because uh, best results because fitness and nutrition exercise and nutrition can and will change your life if you commit to them that's awesome and, and also i have a link to your book on hypertrophy the, the science and development of muscle hypertrophy i that you know i'm a big fan of that and it's very technical but if readers want to know how muscles grow or if listeners want to know how muscles grow then that that's that's the first book i'd turn to awesome hey thanks for your time brad i appreciate it my pleasure brad. Well, to be honest, you might have to go back and listen to the interview a couple different times in order to get all the information out of it. And again, I'm going to link to to Brad's book. I'm going to link to the article I wrote using Brad's research down in the show notes. So if you want a different point of reference, by all means, go there. I'm also going to link to Brad's website. And I have to admit, I really, I mean it. His blog, Look Great Naked, is one of my favorite titles that I've seen in the fitness industry. And any information that Brad puts out there I want you to know that's information that is accurate, 100% accurate. You can hear from his responses how detailed, how thoughtful he is. And you can see why people turn to him. He works with competitive bodybuilders. He works with professional athletes. You know, he travels around the world. He's one of these people who travels around the world educating personal trainers, besides teaching in college. So when I'm trying to bring guests to you, I want to bring people that understand how our body responds to exercise. There is so much nonsense out there, you know, in general media. And, you know, we talk about this a little bit. One of the one of the least favorite things that people in my field that on the education side of things, one of the least favorite things we hear we hear from people is, well, I saw on Instagram or I saw this on YouTube because, you know, I, there's some good information out there. I mean, look, you know, one of my recent you know, guests, Dr. Andy Galpin, has a very detailed YouTube channel. Obviously, if somebody has a DR in front of their name, they're going to be telling you something that's for the most part, evidence-based. You know, as I say that, I think of a couple of charlatans out there who use a DR moniker. Maybe they're, a chiro- you know, I'm not putting down chiropractors, but just pay attention. I mean, if they have a DR moniker, look a little bit deeper into what they're doing. What's their background? What's their area of expertise? And Brad's area of expertise is hypertrophy, how muscles grow. If you want to understand how your muscles adapt to exercise, he's the first, you know, he's the first person to go to. You know, his blog, Look Great Naked, obviously, I mean, that's the purpose of his blog. You know, we need muscle definition to look great naked. As we talk about, exercise is only part of the equation. The other part of the equation is energy intake. Are you taking in the right nutrients? Are you taking in the right amount of energy for your body? And I'll have a couple of guests speaking about that coming up. But what I wanted to talk about with Brad was how do our muscles grow? How do our muscles adapt? And honestly, if you go into Google Scholar and do a, rec- and, and do a search for Brad's name, you'll see all the articles that, that he's listed. And one of his areas of specialty as a researcher is doing a meta-analysis, 
where he looks at a wide variety of studies and he studies the studies in order to come up and look at trends in the research. He's one of the people that really specializes in that. Hopefully you got a lot out of today's conversation and got a deeper understanding of what your muscles are doing or how your muscles are adapting to the exercise. And here's one thing we know for sure. It's going to take some trial and error to find out what works for you. Some people may respond well to a bodybuilding type program. Some people may respond well to power training or power lifting. Power lifting is a little bit different. Power lifting is heavy max strength training. Some people may respond better to body weight training, but that's part of the fun of this, right? Exercise should be about the experience. Do exercise because you enjoy it. You know, I think sometimes we get too hung up on the outcome. We get too hung up on, we got to look a certain way. We have to be, you know, you know if, that is, if that's important to you, if you want to walk on a stage, if you want to, you know, compete in a bathing suit or your underwear, God bless, by all means, do that. But really, exercise is about changing the way you feel. Exercise should be about giving you the confidence to do whatever it is you want to do in life. I mean, if you want to compete in a figure competition, and by that I mean all bodybuilding, bikini categories, whatever, do that. Brad's research will help you get there quicker. But if you just want to have the ability to play with your grandkids, or you want to have the ability to do your favorite activities injury-free, then that's a perfect reason to exercise. You don't have to exercise to look like a competitive bodybuilder. If you want to exercise just because you want to be healthier, that's perfect. That's a great way to do that. And that's why I'm here with this podcast is to try to give you that information for how you can be healthier in your life, for the things that you can do in your life to make the quality of your life better. And that's why I'm so stoked to be team up with my new sponsor. You know, Health IQ is a life insurance company you know, I had that, that intro or had that, you know, new commercial in my introductory part, but Health IQ is a life insurance policy for people like us who enjoy being active. You know, why should we have to pay the same life insurance rates as people who aren't active? Obviously, we're enhancing our quality of life. We're improving our health. We're probably reducing our risk of mortality. Well, depending on what you do in your activity, you might be increasing, whatever, but it's a whole different thing. But the fact is that somebody out there identified a need for a life insurance product for people like us that enjoy exercise, that make their health and fitness a priority. So take a time, take a moment, check them out. I appreciate that. Also, if you, if you are liking All About Fitness, I've received some feedback from people. I just want to say thank you very much. For those of you that have sent me emails, for those of you that have been giving me ratings, I am truly, um, I'm truly honored that you took the time to do that. And I really I appreciate what you're saying. I'm trying to put the best information out there. I want you, the listener, the fitness enthusiast, to know the best way to, you know, the, to, how to identify the best exercise for your needs. So please keep checking back to All About Fitness because I got some great people coming up. I'm really excited about some of the interviews I've done recently. So keep checking back, keep stopping by, and keep tuning in. And if you're new to All About Fitness or if you've been listening for a little while, if you could do me a favor and give me a rating, you know how it works. The more ratings we have, the higher up in the search engines and yada, yada, yada on all that. I want to share this information with as many people as possible. And if you take just a few moments to give me a rating, that makes it possible. So if you have any questions, comments, feedback, please email me, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. Check out my blog regularly, PeteMcCallFitness.com. I put out information. I blog for the American Council on Exercise. I blog for 24-Hour Fitness. I put out that information regularly on my Twitter feed. My Twitter handle is at PeteMC underscore fitness. Twitter is PeteMC underscore fitness. You can also check me out on Instagram. I put information up on Instagram. My Instagram is Pete McCall underscore fitness. 
Thanks for stopping by All About Fitness. I look forward to having you join me for future episodes.